Good evening. Um, the first Bible reading uh, tonight is from Acts chapter 17, and we're reading from verses 1 to 12. Uh, and you can find that in your few Bibles, or most of them, on page uh, 1160. So Acts 17, 1 to 12. When they passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on the th- three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and uh, proving that Christ, the Christ had suffered, had to suffer and rise from the dead. This, Je- this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. To the crowd. But when they did, did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They were all defying, defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials uh, were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the other others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away from Berea, on arriving away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were more noble character, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was tr- what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. This- The second, Bible re- <laughs> the second Bible reading is um, from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, from verse 16. It's on page 1234 in the Church Pew Bible. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, 
supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Thanks be to God for his word. Well, what did you think of that passage? <laughs> wow. And um, Tim was asking me this evening, just when I came here, are you well? <laughs> I'm sure after looking at that passage, perhaps you can ask that question as well. Really, what is Paul saying in Colossians chapter 2? Well, if you're coming to the evening services, you know that we've been studying the book of Colossians, and it's a very interesting and uh, deep book. Uh, at uh, a first read, perhaps, you might look at the book and say, well, it's not a really complicated book. But as you dig deep into chapters, especially chapter 3, ch- sorry, chapter 2, uh, we see that it is a book that has so many things mentioned in it. It's quite deep, in fact. It's a rich book. It has a tremendous Christological emphasis on the book. And uh, so we're going to let to tackle uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, 16 to 23 this evening. So let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray tonight that you will give us understanding of your word. We pray that you'll help us to apply it into our hearts and lives. And we pray that you make us strong in Jesus, that we will grow in the truth and knowledge of your word and love for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to start uh, this evening by uh, showing you a clip. I'm sure that you've heard of uh, this guy, uh, Bishop Spong. Just uh, let's have a listen to what he's got to say. I don't think hell exists. I happen to believe in life after death, but I don't think it's got a thing to do with reward and punishment. Religion is always in the control business, uh, and that's something people don't really understand. It's, it's in the guilt-producing control business. And if you have heaven as a place where you're rewarded for your goodness and hell as a place where you're punished for your evil, then you sort of have control of the population. 
And so they create this fiery place, which has quite literally scared the hell out of a lot of people throughout Christian history. Mm. And it's part of a control tactic. But wait a minute. You're saying that hell, the idea of a place under the earth or somewhere where you're tormented for an eternity, is actually an invention of the church? I think the church fired its furnaces hotter than anybody else. But I think there's a sense in most religious life of of reward and punishment in some form. The church doesn't like for people to grow up. Because you can't control grown-ups. That's why we talk about being born again. When you're born again, you're still a child. The people don't need to be born again. They need to grow up. They need to accept their responsibility for themselves and the world. What do you make of the theology, which uh, is pretty quite prominent these days in America, which is that there is one guaranteed way not to go to hell, and that is to accept Jesus as your personal Savior? Yeah, I grew up in that tradition uh, every church I know claims that we are the true church, and they have some ultimate authority. We have the infallible Pope, we have the inerrant Bible. The idea that the truth of God can be bound in any human system, by any human creed, by any human book, is almost beyond imagination for me. I mean, God is not a Christian. God is not a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist. All of those are human systems which human beings have created to try to help us walk into the mystery of God. I honor my tradition. I walk through my tradition. But I don't believe my tradition defines God. I think it only points me to God. You and I are... Well, what's your take on that one? Right? (laughs) Right. This is Bishop Spong. is a minister in the church. And the teaching is coming from the church. And uh, you heard clearly tonight his view on scriptures. You knew, uh, heard about his view of being born again. You don't need to be born again. There is no concept called, there is no hell. So that uh, eliminates everything that Jesus has said about eternity, about uh, justice. And uh, that's the kind of teaching that has now crept in uh, to the church. And we look at Colossians tonight. Uh, what we see here is, a kind of false teaching that has come in to this church as well. Uh, for example, the church as we know, let me give you a brief context here. Paul had never been to Colossae. He had not met members of the church there. The church was founded by this guy Epaphras. And uh, we read that in Colossians chapter... Well, Colossians... Chapter 1, 7, and 8. I hope we can get that going. All right, good. All right. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And about five or seven years later, Epaphras joined Paul in prison at Rome. We read that in Colossians chapter 4, to inform him of a problem in the church. The problem was some strange, false teaching and human philosophy which had crept into this church. And therefore, Paul needed to address this situation. And so Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And then Paul deals with this empty and deceitful philosophy 
in chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. We've looked at that already. Now, Paul was not looking down at philosophy, but Paul condemns philosophy that is based on human reason alone, which leaves God out of the picture. And in our text tonight, Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 23, Paul moves to another aspect of his argument against this false teaching. What is the nature of this false teaching or philosophy? It is not easy to pinpoint exactly, I think, the nature of the heresy in this church. It seems to me to be most likely a syncretistic blend of Jewish and Greek beliefs, plus human philosophy and some pagan rituals. Looking at the nature of this false teaching, I am of the view that there is also a Gnostic element in the mixture. Because the Gnostics taught that the material world is unreal. They thought that the body is evil. It is not good. So you need to deprive your body of certain foods and so forth so that you will feel alright in yourself. It is also possible, I think, that there is an element of Montanism here as well. Montanism is a teaching that believes that there was a unique mystical knowledge of the truth available only to a selected or special uh, a few uh, people who, who've got this, this kind of connection with the outside world. So therefore, these, uh, the, the, I think that the teaching here is a very strange mix. It's a complicated one. It's a complex one. It is like a tossed salad. It has various things. I mean, I'm sure we love our salads, right? Come on. Tell me yes. <laughs> it's like a tossed salad. It has various things thrown into it with some salad dressing to make it really attractive, right? So we don't know really the identity of these teachers. We don't know them. False teachers wanted the Colossian Christians to supplement Christ by adding something to the gospel. It is a gospel of Jesus plus. And the false teachers were impressing upon the Colossian Christians that in order for them to, com- to be complete in their Christian faith, to be complete Christians, they needed to follow these philosophies and laws and human regulations. And it was a serious issue in the church. As I was preparing this text, I was thinking to myself, what, we, what would we do if a group of teachers or people came into this church and started teaching different kinds of teachings within the family of God. I'm sure we'll address it. But it will be a very difficult situation as well. And so how does Paul deal with the situation? I've given you an outline. I hope you got it. Uh, Three points that we want to look at this evening. It's given in your outline. Let no one judge you, Paul says in verses 16 and 17. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. That alone is a complex thing there. Um, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And with this word, therefore, Paul links the previous section and moves to another stage 
of analyzing the false teaching that is promoted by these false teachers. In verses 16 and 17, Paul tackles the specific practices of these uh, false teachers, uh, naming them specifically in the text. Food and drink, a festival, a new moon, Sabbath. Therefore, let no one judge you. Let no one pass judgment on you or condemn you on what you eat and drink. Now, food and drink, friends. It seems that these false teachers were teaching that these Gentile Christians had to obey the Old Testament rituals by not eating certain foods and abstaining from drink. Now, there's not much in the Old Testament that speaks about what we can drink and what we cannot drink. It's not much in the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks a lot about food as to what one can eat and cannot eat. Clean and unclean foods. And these laws regarding clean and unclean foods are to be maintained. And explain the reason for that in a moment. For example, in Leviticus, we read these things mentioned for us. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between the living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. So God gave specific regulations, specific commands for his people not to eat certain meats. And here the false teachers were saying to these Colossian Christians that if they really wanted to be real Christians, that they needed to obey the Old Testament laws by not eating certain kinds of meats. It's like saying today that if you're a real Christian, well, it's not in the Bible here, okay? If you're a real Christian, then you should not eat kangaroo. I, I don't eat kangaroo meat. Uh, or venison, or, or pork, or don't have prawns, or lobsters, or whatever it is. Right? Abstain from these things. That would be very tough, isn't it? Not to enjoy prawns? Come on. We all love prawns. I'm sure we do. No? Good. I'm sure you love pork, right? With the crackling. Say yes. All right, that's good. <laughs> the, the, see, the, these false teachers also wanted them to refrain from drink. Now, again, you look at the text, it doesn't explain to what the drink is. Possible reference to wine or a strong drink. That is, they were saying, well, you can't have a a glass of wine, you can't have a beer, because if you're doing that, then you're really not the real Christian. See, I think what we see here is a kind of legalism that's been imposed upon these people. You see, legalism can be defined as adding something to grace to make us acceptable to God. For example, today there are some who may identify true Christians as those who do not drink beer or wine. Just an example. Or perhaps those who don't dance. Uh, if you dance, then you're perhaps not the real deal. Uh, that, that, would, that would put me out of the equation completely. Put me on a dance floor and I love dancing. It's been part of my life. And that's the, in fact, that was the one thing that I was really concerned when I became a Christian. Well, I have to give up dancing. You know, I think that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I used to dance all the time. Friday night, Saturday night to Sri Lanka. But... Dancing. If you dance, you're not a Christian. Or perhaps the way you dress. They might make a judgment on that. You see, these false teachers imposed these restrictions on not only what they could eat, but also wanted them to observe certain things. Festivals, 
New Moon Celebrations, Sabbaths. These three terms appear together many times in the Old Testament. Example in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 66. Right? And the Jews in the Old Testament were tied to the religious calendar for the days of worship and celebrations. They all had a proper place in God's scheme of things at the time for his special people. And God wanted a people unto himself. And because he wanted a people unto himself, he gave them specific laws and regulations that they ought to follow in order for him to connect, to be separate from the rest of the nations. Right? That's why he gave it to them. He wanted it that way. And God did not want them to intermingle with others. And so God gave them these laws. And these false teachers were saying, on the one hand, that these Gentile Colossian Christians had to obey the Old Testament ceremonial laws with regard to the festivals, feast days, new moons, and the seventh-day Sabbath. Lots of stuff, isn't it? Though they were Christians, they were not only to gather on the Lord's Day because we meet on the first day of the week with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they were to observe the Sabbath, the seventh day, and the festivals, and the feast, and the new moons. Now, these are all specific festivals that we have in the Old Testament. And the question is, why shouldn't they observe these laws? Why? Why shouldn't they observe the ceremonial code that was given in the Old Testament? And we see Paul's response to this in verse 17, where Paul reminds them that these are shadows of things to come. Right? These are shadows of things to come. In the New Covenant, those laws were set aside. These laws and celebrations were but a shadow Christ is the substance. That's what it is, right? Why do I say that? For example, the author of the book of Hebrews says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So we have the shadows pointing forwards. These things pointed to Jesus. It's fascinating. Looking at the Old Testament, you see the shadows pointing to something that was to come, someone who was to come in the future. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the lambs that were sacrificed, the entire priestly order set up in the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus Christ in the future. And Paul is saying, reminds them that these are shadows of things to come. These things pointed to Jesus. In Christ, we have the reality And he's saying to them, don't go back there. Christ has come. And so we have the blessing of grace. Amen to that, right? Okay. You see, these were a shadow of things to come. This shadow has now been fulfilled in Jesus. And in these shadows, we learn that no matter how important these sacrifices were, we make an error if we place importance in the ceremonies themselves and not in their ability to point people to Jesus. So in other words, take for example our church, the way we operate here. We might do a lot of stuff up here at times. I mean, lots of, we, don't, we are not the high standard ceremonial type of church, right? We don't have a hierarchical system 
uh, in our, in our uh, Presbyterian system of government, our services, we do acknowledge the fact of the purity of worship uh, in, our, in our services. But if they don't point to Jesus, then we've lost the mark. We've missed the mark completely, haven't we? <laughs> we missed it. You see, Jesus has fulfilled these shadows. Nothing in the law was ever revealed as an end in itself, but was given to show us our need for Christ and the work he would do on our behalf. Galatians chapter 3. And Jesus has fulfilled these shadows. And therefore Paul says, don't go back there anymore. Don't let legalism bring you down. Don't let human philosophy and man-made rules put you under bondage. Jesus said, come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, then let no one disqualify you or rob you of a prize. Chapter 2, 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Let's look at that. Just look at that text for a moment, right? What are we to make of this? Self-humiliation, worship of angels, visionary experiences. And they have lost connection with the head. Chapter 2, 19. I think what we see here is ascetism. Some translations will translate this word ascetism or self-humiliation. Right? Let no one disqualify. I'll come back to that in a moment. Let no one disqualify you. This word disqualify is an athletic term where the, ref- where the referee disqualifies you because you have not kept the rules when you were competing in the race. For example, uh, my neighbor, uh, where, where we live, is a marathon runner. He's a fit guy. And I go for a run, but uh, I can't compare myself with him. He runs, what, 42 kilometers or something. And he, was, he took me out for coffee, actually. I'm trying to share the gospel with this guy. He said, Chris, let's go for a coffee. And he started talking to me about marathons. Now, I don't know so much about running. Imagine if someone's running a marathon and they take a shortcut <laughs> and then get to the finishing line somehow. That won't be really good, would it? I'll disqualify the guy or the girl from the prize straight away, right? This is an athletic term. It's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you of the prize. You see, the text here, that is this word ascetism or self-humiliation or self-abasement that comes through in the word that has been used here. And Paul wants the Colossian believers not to be misled by, I think, the context would suggest ascetic practices. Now, let me explain it. You see, in Eastern religions, for example, there's a stress in non-biblical immanence that teaches that God is so wrapped up in his creation that he is absorbed into it. And it is possible that the context would suggest this because immediately we are introduced to the worship of angels in verse 23. So I'll expand a little bit more of this asceticism as we go along. The worship of angels. Now what do you think about that? Um, people today do all kinds of things, don't they? The New Age movement, for example, calling on angels, calling on spirits to help guide them. Right? Have you read the papers? Look at the, the back of your newspapers. 
that astrology and all of those kind of things is these uh, these people who, who who get in touch with the spirit world. And it's possible here that those holding this view often promote devotion to intermediary beings who can put in a good word with the next with God. Right? They they can be intermediaries, as it were, with God. And ancient Colossae had its share of those who looked to intermediary beings such as angels for help. And some of these claimed to be Christians. So they were looking for to the angels to give them help. It's a big thing today, friends. This whole thing about angels is a big thing. Right? You look at the papers, it's filled with it. May the angels be with you. May the angels guide you. I mean, we have a different understanding of angels. Right? God's uh, servants do his bidding. But these people look at angels and they start to worship them. Uh, one commentator tells us that there is evidence at this particular time in Colossae that angel worship was prevalent at the time. And so we know that the Essene community, for example, leaned toward angel worship. And one of their writings tell them to carefully regard and guard the names of angels. But angel worship is forbidden. Let me say this. In Revelation, when John tried to worship the angel twice, the angel said, get up. Do not worship me. I am a creature. Worship whom? God. Right? Revelation 22. Then there are these visionary experiences. Instead of following Jesus, these teachers glorified also in their visions as a mark of true godliness. 2.18. Along with angel worship, and ascetism, such things plainly went against godly thinking and they denied that Jesus alone is sufficient. So in doing so, why don't we worship angels and have these kind of visionary experiences? There is a danger in doing this, friends. In doing so, we can open ourselves up to all kinds of evil spirits and demonic forces. Now, I have seen it myself. I have witnessed it Myself, before I became a Christian, I'm telling you, I'm sharing with you personal stuff here. I used to go to the temple and worship. I used to dress myself in white, bare feet at the temple. And I remember, and I can vividly remember this even right now, to the day that I was at this temple, and this guy, this, this priest, was in a trance. And I knew nothing about the gospel, I knew nothing about the spirit world, I was there, I was standing in front of him. He was in a trance, a fearful sight, and he was communicating in a language that I could not understand. And he was relating that message to us who were standing there, not knowing really what was going on. And I came out of the place thinking, wow, that's, that's great, because I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about Jesus. I never knew about the demonic world. And I looked at this guy and said, wow, he's so close to God. He can connect with this world outside there. And I'm just a nobody. It's a fearful thing, really. I don't know whether you've seen somebody ever in a trance. It's a frightful sight. It happens. I witnessed it. So what we have here is a strange mixture of Christian teaching, pagan ideas, Jewish ritual, ritual piety, including the worship of angels, visionaries, all of these things put 
together. And worst of all, these false teachers looked down on those who did not add angel worship to faith in the Savior, being puffed up with pride in their own pious activities, puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. And they have lost connection with the head. Right? Look at the passage. Chapter 2 and verse 19. You're with me, right? Good. Chapter 2 and verse 19. They have lost, look at it, what it says. And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Holding fast tells me that at some time they would have been Christians. At some time. Right? Now friends, they have lost connection with Christ. The most foundational aspects of our salvation is our union with Jesus Christ. The believer's union with Christ is a diamond in our faith. In his systematic theology, Louis Burkhoff defines union with Christ as follows. That intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which he is the source of their life and strength of their blessedness and their salvation. So Paul is saying here, if you have lost connection with the head, you have lost connection with Jesus. And you are not getting that nourishment that ought to come. I want to encourage us tonight to be assured that if you are a Christian this evening, that you are in union with Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the head. We are his body. Christ is the foundation. And we are the living stones. And they are the blessings that we have. For example, the marriage between a husband and a wife ultimately points to the, to what? To the union between Christ and his church. So they're not holding fast. And then let's keep moving on. Let, let no one enslave you. 20 to 23. If, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world. I'm not going to read the text. You can see it there. It says, do not handle do not taste, do not touch. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they are self-imposed worship, self-humiliation, harsh treatment of the body. These regulations, Paul says, has no value. Now, we can go on a lot about this text tonight. I'm not going to do it for the purpose of time. Right? Do not submit to man-made rules here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The Colossians teachers... The, 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 the false teachers here were saying, now if you really want to be a real Christian, then you're going to have to follow these harsh ascetic practices. You see, food is there to be enjoyed, right? Do you enjoy food? Good food? Yeah, right? Food is there to be enjoyed, okay? Uh, we enjoy a good meal all the time, right? It's a good thing. Right? God gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, what these guys were saying is, don't, don't touch, don't handle, don't have anything to do with this, specific kinds of food perhaps, and they were promoting a form of asceticism. And asceticism basically means this, friends, it simply means the abuse or the denial of the body of certain things or food for spiritual purposes. So it would mean that you would abuse the body to become more holy, giving up certain things. Uh, there are monks and mystics uh, who do this kind of thing to make them holy. I, I, I was at a family uh, last weekend. I visited a specific home. And they had on their TV a program by SBS. Uh, SBS program on, uh, on monks. Uh, or, or monks living in 
I think in, in Tibet or somewhere. And these guys, they locked themselves in this cave for many, many years, living a simplistic lifestyle in order to make themselves more holy. I mean, I went visiting this family. It was tempting to actually watch the program. <laughs> I said, well, let's put it off. I just wanted to follow. It's fascinating. Things that people do. And things that people do to their bodies. Yet again, I've seen it many, many times in Sri Lanka. The things that people do to their bodies. Physically abusing their bodies. In order to be made. I wouldn't want to say the things that I've seen and witnessed. We have children here tonight. It's just it's terrible in order for them to be made holy and to be made right. See, Paul says, reject this. This will not deal with the issue of sin in, in, in our lives. Christ has given us everything. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. But Paul says it is of no value. It does not work. So, what we see here is, as we wind our way to, towards the conclusion tonight, what we see here is Paul urging the Colossians to refute these false errors and encourage them to stand firm in Jesus. Heresy must be dealt with. If not, it will affect your life and the church. Uh, Dr. Asis Prowl commenting on this, uh, on this matter in his uh, article on non None dare call it heresy, says this. Is every theological error a heresy? In a broad sense, every departure from biblical truth may be regarded as heresy. But in the currency of Christian thought, the term heresy has usually been reserved for gross distortions of biblical truth, for errors so grave that they threaten either the essence, the essay, or the Christian faith, or the well-being, what he calls bene esse, of the Christian church. So there are dangers for us today. What are the dangers? I'll give you some. The prosperity gospel. Alright? Come to Jesus, and man, you will be whistling all the way to the bank. Right? You'll be doing fine. Name it and claim it. Because God says so, you're a child of the king, so you name it, you claim it, God will give it to you. What about all those poor Christians in Africa? Other parts of Asia. Think about them. People who don't have a meal to eat are brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I, I just don't get it. Where, do, where does prosperity theology fit into an African nation of Christians? It simply doesn't fit, does it? false gospel. Theological liberalism. We heard Bishop Spong creeping into the church. It starts with little things. And that is why, friends, in the Presbyterian church, we are so cautious in terms of who operates from the pulpit in our churches. We don't just hand the pulpit over to anyone. Certainly not. Because we want to know their theology. I want to know if somebody is preaching here, what he is preaching. The truth of the word of God. When we appoint lecturers at the PTC, they go through a stringent process so that the assembly appoints the lecturers to know that these men understand the word of God and oppose the integrity of the scriptures. 
theological liberalism. Cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they use Christian phrases but have a complete uh, different, uh, different understanding of what it is. The New Age movement, relativism, I can go on, whereas uh, truth is subjective. So how do we guard ourselves against false teaching? I think this, the single best way to protect ourselves against false teaching is to know the truth of God's word thoroughly. Right? We have no excuse, friends. I was at Kurong the other day. Uh, I ordered other books as well. And the amount of books that's available today for us to read, good, solid, theologically reformed books that, not just, I don't think Kurong's got all the selection there, no offense to that, 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 Store in any shape or form. They've got good books. But you can order good books as well from other sites. Get into the meat of God's, primarily God's word. But you can get commentators commenting on God's word to enrich ourselves in the growth of our souls, of understanding of God's word. See, I have a firm grasp of the truth. We will recognize falsehood when it comes our way. And the truth is in his word. We read tonight, uh, Acts chapter 17, who are those guys? Come on, Acts chapter 17, the Bereans, right? What were they doing? And Paul was teaching, what were they doing? Hey, they were, tell me, they were searching the scriptures and saying, man, is that guy correct in what he's saying? Is Paul correct? See, when, when we teach here, you should be looking at the scriptures and saying, well, is this guy for real? Is he saying the truth here? Always try to uphold the truth of God's word. Always. You see, they did not receive Paul's word with eagerness. They did. They, they checked it out. And uh, what else more? We, we say this in Colossians as we wind up. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So ultimately, friends, it is Christ He's the head of his church. He's the victor. He's the king. He's the potentate of all times. He loves his church. He's God incarnate who has come in the fullness to dwell. All the Old Testament ceremonial laws pointed to Jesus. And Paul combats this false teaching by showing the Colossians that we have all what we need in Christ. Why? Because Jesus, by the power of his death and resurrection, has given every believer salvation in Christ. I want to ask you a question tonight. Are you satisfied in Jesus? Or are you looking for something, Jesus plus something else, for you to be feeling good? <laughs> but Christ has done it all for us. I mean, this is the most amazing work. And no wonder the book of Colossians is a high Christological book. And I think next week is a wonderful passage. Uh, the preacher is Ian, he's going to preach on that. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, you know, our standing in Christ has already been raised up with Christ. Our lives have been hidden with God in glory. We'll reveal one day. I mean, this is the richness of our, of our Savior. We are totally saved. He has set us free. We are totally complete in Christ. We obey, we love, and we serve in response to His grace. We want to live for Him, not out of legalism, but in response for His love for you and for me. Are you living your life in response to God's grace, to God's love for you, that you say, Lord, I thank you that I no longer have to keep these regulations, these things that drive me crazy, but I can trust you. 
because you've done it all. <laughs> and you've made me complete in Jesus. That's what it is. And I pray tonight that we will indeed rejoice in the position that we have in Christ. The position we have in Jesus. Remember that. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that in the fullness of time, you sent Jesus Christ into this world with all the Old Testament ceremonial laws, festivals, everything pointed to the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have forgiveness and ultimate fulfillment in Christ alone. We pray tonight that we rejoice in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray tonight, Lord, that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus, that today might be the day of salvation. Heavenly Father, keep us safe from false teaching. Help us to be theologically wise, to understand your word, to know the truth, to know the very embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ, and to honor you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.